This is Top Floor, episode 75. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 75. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast right up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Jennifer Hill grew up in the hotel business, quite literally hanging out in the lobby where her mom worked the evening shift at the front desk. Since she learned the basics before age eight, Jennifer had a meteoric rise through the ranks, becoming area director of revenue, rooms division manager, and general manager all by the age of 26. An improv comedy student and practitioner of commercial strategy before it had the name, Jennifer is now vice president of commercial strategy for Calibri Labs, where one of her jobs is teaching people how to properly pronounce the company's name. Calibri. It's like calibrate. Today, we are going to talk about reading, incentive plans, and probably tacos. But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals and random strangers who have burning questions that we can help with. If you would like to submit a question, please call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Daniel. And Daniel asks, does a small independent boutique hotel need an RMS, a revenue management system. Why or why not? All right, Vice President of Commercial Strategy, Jennifer Hill, what do you think? Thanks so much for having me on, Susan. Uh, An answer to Daniel's question is yes. Yes. Unless you are, I don't know, five room B&B. I think it's important to have an RMS, especially in a small hotel where most folks are going to be wearing many hats. You should definitely have technology help you be more profitable and optimize the business mix in your hotel. And an RMS can do that even at its most simple version. Excellent. I agree, but I wanted the real expert's opinion. So I'm glad that Daniel asked us that. In episode 44, when we were both at High Tech and HSMAI last year, we talked about how your mom and grandmother worked at the same hotel where you got your start. Your grandmother opened the hotel as the host in the restaurant in the 1960s. And your mom started in banquets, but ultimately became director of sales and assistant general manager. Was she doing those jobs at the same time? At the same time. Oh, bless. Her title was Assistant General Manager in Charge of Sales. It was even printed on her business card. Oh, Lord have mercy. So for a lot of people, this would have caused them to run like hell away from the hotel business. Did you always plan to be a hotelier or did you go back and forth? What would you be doing if you weren't doing this? I actually planned to run like hell. And... (laughs) Decided pretty early on in adulthood uh, that I wasn't going to pursue a career in hospitality, really for two reasons. One, 
I felt like it had been sort of an uninvited member of my family for a long time. My mom was a single mom and her job obviously paid all of our bills. And so it was something that often took precedent out of necessity. I remember watching the fireworks for the 4th of July one time from the parking lot of the hotel, which was fortunately near the city park instead of at the park because one of the uh, first floor wings had flooded. And so we had gotten called to the hotel instead of to the fireworks where we were headed. And I worked at that hotel until I was a senior in high school. And about May, I decided I wanted to go to prom and do the things that you do in high school, which I hadn't done because I had been working at the hotel and another part-time job. And over that summer, I got a job working at a Borders bookstore halfway between home and where I originally went to school and thought, you know, this is for me because what I wanted to do is teach English. Uh, That was really my goal was to study English and to become a teacher. And about five months into my college career, I saw hotel advertising for a part-time night auditor Friday and Saturday nights. I wasn't really a big partier and thought this would be a good time to, you know, get my homework done, really get ahead for the week. And that was all she wrote. So I didn't go back and forth as much as I came back and never left again. It's pretty ironic that both of my parents were English teachers and my sister and I ran like hell away from that and into hospitality. (laughs) You became a general manager at 26 and I know it wasn't your favorite experience that you've ever had. What were some of the highs and some of the lows? Some of the highs were really the sense of accomplishment that I had that There were people and a company who believed in my career and my experience and my professionalism at that young age and at that point in my career to entrust me with a hotel. You know, I think most of your listeners, but maybe not everyone, will understand and realize that a hotel is essentially a cruise ship. You are the captain of that cruise ship uh, when you are the general manager. And so the high for me was the pride and that sense of accomplishment, but I also had a really incredible team. And some of the lows were, you know, in in the opposite direction, you know, a sense of failure when it wasn't the right fit for me. And it was uh, a lot. I was managing payroll and accounting and all the hiring and covering shifts and setting up banquet rooms and often being the you know, uh, backup breakfast bar attendant when we didn't have someone working part-time. And I was doing all of that in the months after my mom, who was my mentor, uh, had passed away pretty suddenly. So while it was a great opportunity, it was a really tough time for me personally. And emotionally, I don't think I was prepared to take all of that on. And so it wasn't the, the most successful I probably could have been at a different point in my life. So after that, you spent years and years at the biggest and best hotel management companies, including Logian, Interstate, and Highgate. And then you were recruited for a job at Calibri Labs. What were some of the biggest differences between working on the hotel side and becoming essentially a vendor? I hate that word, but you know what I mean. (laughs) I switch between vendor and partner because it's hard, right? Vendor seems like I only want something. And one of the things I pride myself on that I think we do well as a company is partnering with clients and partnering with industry to support the health and overall mission of hospitality. Uh, For me, 
this is always the first thing that comes to mind is I, two things would go to work at the time we were not remote first. And so I was going to work in an office building and I would ask random people in the elevator on my way from the parking garage to the office, how they slept out of habit. It happened two or three times before (laughs) I I realized that I probably shouldn't be asking strangers (laughs) how they slept because that was just my go-to elevator question. That's amazing. How did you sleep? How was your stay? Fortunately, I never said that. Uh, And the other challenge that I have had and have to this day, more than five years later, is feeding myself, um, knowing how to plan and prepare for lunch specifically, but also breakfast and not having the fallback of being able to go to the employee cafeteria or to bebop my way into the kitchen and tell someone I'm hungry and have that be resolved pretty quickly. (laughs) So those are the two big things that always come to mind. But the other big one uh, for me that I think a lot of people may struggle with just even as they grow in their career and it becomes more strategic versus tactical is this is a role that requires thinking and thoughtfulness and strategy. And it's not super transactional, meaning it's not you come in every day and you have this set of reports to run and this number of emails to send out and this type of update to send out that at the end of an eight or 10 or 15 hour day, you can feel accomplished and like you got a lot done. Um, There's a lot less tangible work that goes into sort of planning uh, and organizing on the partner side. I think that Uh, people may not realize coming directly out of hotels. That makes sense. You are extremely active in HSMAI, which is the Hospitality Sales and Marketing Association International. Full disclosure, I am also a member, but I'm not very active because there isn't a chapter in Georgia and I do not want to start one. Can you talk about what you get out of your membership and leadership roles with HSMAI? Absolutely. HSMAI is really the core industry association, in my view, for both networking and education and growth and development. And I became a member in 2014 after I was nominated for and won the Revenue Management Professional of the Year award that they award. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. So 2014, I was the last year that there was one winner. In 2015, they moved to doing two winners, one single unit or on property, and then one multi-unit or corporate. And I became a member because of that award, but I also uh, became a CRME, a Certified Revenue Management Executive, which is one of the certifications they offer and had also gotten very heavily involved in the relaunch of the local chapter in Washington, D.C., which is where I was based at the time. I did that because I wanted to participate. I felt it was important to have a chapter and it is a lot of work. So I understand your hesitancy to start a new chapter. We're very fortunate that we have a managing director uh, for the DC chapter with which I'm so heavily involved. But after a while, it became really evident to me that this was a way for me to give back to an industry and to an organization that had given me a lot. Um, There was definitely a launching pad for my career, my career growth after I won that award in 2014. And then I was fortunate enough a few years later to be nominated for another award they present each year, which is top 25 minds in sales, marketing and revenue optimization. So I won uh, the top 25 award for revenue optimization and again, felt 
Like it was important for me to continue supporting an industry and organization that supports education and growth and sort of helping people get along and meet people to grow their careers. Uh, It wasn't long after that that I applied for and, and became a member of the Revenue Optimization Advisory Board which are usually three-year terms. Um, So there's one for sales, there's one for marketing, one for revenue optimization. Recently, a global distribution advisory board was launched and they are a group of 20 or so professionals, practitioner organizations, as well as partners who help to drive the future of education for the industry in that particular discipline, whether it's sales or marketing or uh, what has quickly become commercial. And I got a COVID year because it was during the pandemic. (laughs) So I ended up spending four years on the Revenue Optimization Advisory Board. And three of those four years, I was co-chair for their uh, premier conference, which is RAW, Revenue Optimization Conference. And it's super rewarding. Uh, It is volunteer. It is somewhat of a time commitment. But the team that supports HSMAI full-time as their career, uh, led by Bob Gilbert and Julie Jones and all of their support team. They're small but mighty. I think they might be up to 11 full-time employees, but they do these huge conferences and they support all of this work and advocacy for us to get better as an industry. So if I can contribute to that in the slightest possible way, which is giving of my time, a little bit of my brain power here and there, but there is a bit left after working. <laughs> I'm always glad to do that. Commercial strategy is becoming or perhaps has already become the industry buzzword and philosophy that attempts to unite the disciplines of hotel sales, marketing, and revenue strategy. Can you talk a little bit, perhaps level set what commercial strategy is and how it's different from the way that hotels operated in the past? Sure. So I think of commercial strategy, and and we really describe it this way at Calibre Labs as well, as an operational framework where sales, marketing, revenue management, and other key stakeholders are working together toward one common goal with one set of resources, uh, despite where they may fall on a PL statement in terms of budget or other things, and are proactively seeking opportunities for their hotel and for their revenue generation efforts, rather than being reactive and working within the proverbial silos and often toward goals that aren't common, particularly, you know, I think there's a relatively well-known rivalry between sales and revenue leaders. And it is often because they're working at odds with one another. And so commercial strategy works to overcome that and smooth the path so everyone can move forward um, to allocate resources towards opportunities that actually exist, are worth pursuing, and can be done as a group rather than individually. Let's dig in a little bit more to this. This is a topic that I cover all the time on this show. And it's one that I think about a lot. There's something about the language that people use when they talk about commercial strategy that prickles at me and stands out a little bit, which is the whole concept of eliminating silos. Like, I don't think there's anyone in any hotel that's going, you know what we could use are some more silos and less working together, right? Like, I don't think 
anyone wants that, of course, everyone should work together. But it starts to make me wonder if expertise and specialization are becoming less valued if everyone gets a say in everything. I'm going to give a dumb example. If the marketing manager has run 700 Facebook ad campaigns and knows what targeting should look like for this hotel, why does he need to take feedback from somebody who's never run a Facebook ad campaign? They've you know spent their career doing something completely different. That's an extreme example, like I said, but... What do you think? Does that make sense what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And I think it's a natural, a very natural and common response is, well, this is my area of expertise. And I like to offer, at least in terms of how I think about commercial strategy and the framework and, and what we do to support it in industry is that it's not eliminating the need or diminishing the value of expertise but relying more heavily on that as a group. So we have historically a sales leader, we have a marketing leader and a revenue leader, which we will often refer to as a commercial analysis leader because their expertise is doing the data mining, the analysis of that. And what we're encouraging in terms of knocking down the silos, which I agree is language that should go pretty much right out the window. What's important is that everyone has the same goal and it's informed by the same data. So it's not that me as a revenue expert gets to tell my marketing expert that they should write different content or use a different photo or use a different image or run it on a different channel, but that I am providing the information about when it will be most effective for them to deploy a campaign and design a campaign. And similarly, on the flip side, and this is something I really take a lot of pride in too, is having a lot of success partnering with my sales teams when I was working either on property or as a regional for revenue and distribution and is helping everyone understand what the overall business goals were, how we could make more money together, how we could be more successful together by finding or encouraging guests or group inquiries coming in, encouraging the client to look at dates that were need dates. And I was providing that information. I wasn't gatekeeping. I wasn't just saying no, or you have to raise the rate that you're quoting by $200. And it's not asking the salesperson to, to quote $200 or to tell me why they're quoting $200. Although I would often ask the why I wanted them to understand what they were doing. It's having a sense that the data that is informing these decisions is coming from one place and everybody has agreed that these are the opportunities that we're going to pursue and over which dates, where we're going to collect our competitive intelligence and inspiration in terms of competition, where we're going to allocate funds, where we're going to allocate time and talent. And those are the things I think that differ in commercial strategy versus then saying everybody needs to hold hands and get along and make the decisions together like a bunch of Quakers probably <laughs> deserve, deserve so, clarification, but Quakers make decisions as a group. Yes. So I, so I think we've got a new term, which is eliminating gatekeeping versus eliminating silos. I think that is a much more precise description. I also wonder 
you know, I have I haven't done this in quite some time, but I used to write a lot about what I considered to be the importance of a daily business review meeting. And the reason for that was not because I believe that leaders need to micromanage their teams and count, you know, phone calls and nonsense like that, but that that group setting is the way that you teach revenue strategy. That if you don't have a place where everybody comes together and it's just a one-off run to the dorms office or enter something in a group optimizer, then nobody knows why they're doing what they're doing. So I think it's probably very similar to stopping gatekeeping and everybody making decisions from the same data set. And I know your listeners can't see me, but I am nodding emphatically because <laughs> yes, I agree wholeheartedly with that. And that's why I write about myself in my bio that I've been a practitioner of this method prior to it having its name because it is so important to me that that has happened. On the flip side of single source data, for lack of a better term, we'll call it that, there is the incentive plan and goal piece. The number of hotels that I've worked in and with um, where the revenue leader was incentivized on something completely different than the sales leader and completely different than the operations leader. Hotel incentive plans are most of the time extremely complicated with different limits based on the company, different kickers for different achievements, and a different plan for every position on the executive committee and every position in sales. My opinion about this has changed dramatically since I've started to work with more hotel owners versus hotel operators. And now I honest to God think that everyone should have the exact same incentive and that it should be profit full stop. As the industry moves to a commercial strategy model, what do you think about how incentive plans need to change or do they need to change? I definitely believe they need to change. You know, my direct experience with a hotel based or your hotel organization based incentive plan is more than five years ago now, but they were always, as you said, overly complicated and not often achievable. If we as an industry want to attract talent, we have to change that. We have to make it understandable, achievable, make sure that we're not putting a goal line in front of someone that then moves or is different from someone who is by most measures equal to them in terms of org chart. From a profit-based incentive perspective, I agree with you, but I don't think it should be the only thing. I think it should be the primary thing. And then I do think there should be clearly stated, well-understood, transparent goals for individuals based on their role and what they can control. And that's a big part of it for me is, yeah, profitability should be the goal for everyone for obvious reasons. But there are just sometimes things you can't control. And it might be that you know, you're a revenue leader and you had a really great relationship with your director of sales at the property level. And for some reason or another, that person left. They had a baby and moved away. They took a new job. They decided to get out of the business. They were promoted. 
whatever the case may be. And now you have to transition to a new partner that's going to impact the sales managers who reported to that sales leader. And because we have to consider profit a result of the right mix of business, you can't be ultimately responsible for that. But if in the meantime, as a revenue leader, you're ensuring that you are growing transient revenue or you're beating your competitors in the market, you should be rewarded for that, especially if it contributes to profit. But if it doesn't, because maybe the group sales effort is more impacted negatively by something else altogether, maybe the meeting space is out of commission, something that's completely out of everybody's control, then everyone should be rewarded by a KPI that is meaningful to them that they can control that contributed to the overall results. And I know that probably sounds more complicated. (laughs) That's how we end up with these complicated incentive plans. Okay, so just for the sake of debate here, if we're going to dance a little bit, you have a mortgage that you have to pay for your house. And you run over a bed of nails, pop all the tires on your car, have to spend all of the money you had in your account for your mortgage getting new tires so that you can drive back and forth to work. Let's pretend you drive to work. (laughs) Should the mortgage company give you a break on your mortgage? More to the point, not should they, maybe they should. Would they? So what I'm getting at here is... If the owner isn't achieving her profit goals and overall return on the investment, why would anyone who works there be able to get rewarded if the owner doesn't get rewarded? Because they work for it. But that's what the money is for. <laughs> that's what their salary is for. <laughs> well, we know that we know that hotel salaries are generally not commensurate with the work that people give. The hours that are spent, I believe it wholeheartedly. But if people aren't able to achieve their incentive plans now, they're definitely not working for the incentive, right? They're working for their salary and their health insurance and all that stuff. So if I owned a hotel and I didn't make my debt service because the director of sales had a baby and left and the dorm couldn't get along with the new DOS, etc., etc., I don't care. You don't get a bonus. (laughs) I have to pay my bills. Do you know what I mean? I definitely understand what you're saying. I think that this is a more complicated and nuanced business than really most people realize. Because to your point, you know, this didn't become super clear to you until you've started working more closely with owners. And so now you have that perspective. But on the flip side of that is you might have a new hotel owner that has one hotel. It's their life's work. They worked hard to get there. Maybe they're working to build generational wealth. It's the first time they've been able to do that. But the reality, at least in the United States, and this is my personal opinion, the reality is that many hotels are owned by large organizations or are institutionally owned. And The people who are working there are keeping that building open, safe, and comfortable 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And do I believe that if they fall short of a goal that was set likely without their full input, should they be negatively impacted by that? I don't believe that. Yeah, I don't think we should take their money away. I just don't think they should get extra. But my experience with hotel incentive plans, 
and this is no one company. It's sort of an amalgam of my experience talking to people in industry and in my own, but you know, over multiple organizations is that you sometimes have a lower base salary because the promise of this incentive that exists, that is never achievable. I've worked for exactly one company where I've been able to achieve bonus and it's not for lack of success of the hotel. Mm -hmm. The hotel where I was working when I won the revenue management professional of the year award and gave me the metrics to, to enable my, the application and nomination for that award had the best year it had ever had the highest revenue generating year, the highest profitable year. And I got like, 3% of my eligible bonus because of a bunch of other factors outside my control. Interesting. So when you have one goal, you should be working to, I, I, uh, I applaud and support the idea of that, but I struggle because not everybody is on board with taking feedback or accepting help if it's needed in order for everybody to make their goal And then if it's one person out of five that failed and they're the scapegoat for the next 12 months, it just isn't, in my mind, fair in a business that is designed for profit, yes, but is human-centered. So we had talked about reading a book for this conversation and discussing it, but I was very deep into this detective series that I've been reading. (laughs) So I didn't actually read the book. But what I did instead was read the article by the author that you sent me. So the writer is Julia Borstein and her book is called When Women Lead. The article she wrote talks about how women were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, i.e. 1 million more jobs lost than men, which is crazy to contemplate. But she also talks about how women are well-equipped to navigate a downturn if one comes. And some of the reasons that she gives are that women are more likely to lead with a communal rather than top-down approach, that they bring in more diverse perspectives across their organization, and that women rank higher than men in adaptability, empathy, and eagerness to embrace gratitude. So that's a lot of stuff. Do you agree with her? Do you think those things are true? I do. And in my experience, I can say that all of the women leaders I have had have embodied most, if not all, some, I mean, maybe one or two have had all, but most of those traits. And that has been a component of their success. I will also say I have had a couple of of male leaders, particularly in the GM position, that have had those characteristics as well. And that has always been the sign to me going into a new role or being several years in to a well-functioning team and a team that wants to be together and to succeed together. And again, in terms of people who have been in the industry for a long time, you have that one hotel or that one team that you can remember and you'd be glad to run any type of business with them again in the future. And I'm fortunate that I have a couple of those, but in in each case, uh, and with again, male or female leaders, those characteristics are present. The willingness to listen, to hear what the group has to say, and then take action versus making a decision and expecting everyone to fall in line. 
and particularly around expressing gratitude for hard work and recognizing the value and contributions of all of the people who are not in that group, particularly those who are literally doing the backbreaking work of keeping things clean and taking things like International Housekeeping Week seriously and making sure that that extends to the other 51 weeks of the year. So particularly in hospitality, I think those characteristics maybe are not specifically um, gender-based, but are necessary for success. And I also see, you know, sort of as a student of the world, <laughs> that they, they are beneficial for, for women in general um, to avoid that glass cliff. So I'm glad that you said they're maybe not gender specific. I always get a little bit bristly when I hear people describe women in these monolithic terms, like women are more empathetic, women are more nurturing, women are more communal. Some women are, I'm not, and some men are, and not all men are. So it, it always makes me feel a little bit like we're denying people the full spectrum of their humanity if we assign these characteristics. I mean, I know this writer is basing this on data. She's not just like making it up out of her head. <laughs> but it, uh, I don't necessarily want women to be promoted into leadership roles because they're more empathetic and nurturing. I want them to be promoted into leadership roles because they're good at their job, same as men. Does that make sense? It does. And I think you'll find or will find again, because Julia Borstein wrote based on research, right? that the women who are better at their jobs or well-prepared to grow into the next role probably have some, if not all of those characteristics. And it might be empathy or it might be adaptability. It might be comfortable with expressing gratitude and focusing on positive or how how that person handles a mistake on a team. This sounds like a good time to take a break. When we return, Jennifer is going to make me cry. So get your tissues ready. Top Floor is sponsored in part by the Hunter Hotel Investment Conference, taking place March 21st through 23rd at the Atlanta Marriott Marquis. Hunter brings together the hotel industry's most influential leaders and investors for networking opportunities and insightful sessions on hospitality trends. Deals are built on meaningful relationships, and Hunter is where these relationships are made and deals get done. For more information, visit hunterconference.com. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from every episode of Top Floor with some really specific and practical tips they can try either in their personal lives or in business. What is improv and why did you take classes? Do you like how I'm pretending like I don't know what improv is? Tell me, Jennifer Hill, what is improv? Maybe there's someone who doesn't know listening though. So improv, I don't even know the official uh, sort of definition for it, but it is short for improvisation. Uh, and we all do it every single day. So that's the easiest definition. Is uh, But many uh, people sort of connect the dots when I talk about whose line is it anyway. Um, you know, definitely versions of that show. And that is the best and most obvious um, sort of example of improv and improv games. There are various types of improv. Um, you know, there's a long form, there's short form. There are the games that you see on shows like 
whose line is it anyway? And then there are improv bits that are not scripted or planned really in any way that go on to become skits. And that's why uh, shows like Saturday Night Live often have improv students or improv players come up to their skit acting um, at SNL where they write. And so, you know, obviously the big names coming out of improv um, behemoths like Second City in Chicago are Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. Uh, but, you know, that is all based in sort of unplanned, unscripted banter that's designed around a few basic rules. So why did you take classes? I was afraid of failing at my new job. So... Were you I a stand-up just, comedian? <laughs> I was certainly not a stand-up comedian, no. Um, and you don't even have to be funny to do improv, which I think is probably the best benefit for me because I'm not particularly humorous. Uh, a little bit more on the dry side of things when it comes to my sense of humor. But I knew enough about improv and had been a fan of the practice of seeing shows and watching things like Who's Line Is It Anyway, enough to know that it would help me get better on my feet. So when I joined Calibri Labs, I was coming into what would be a very customer-facing sales role, having never done direct sales before and really having been in the revenue world and often able just to shut my door and close everybody out. I knew that to be successful in the role and to sort of prove myself, I would have to get better uh, on my feet, both thinking and recovering if I had made a mistake or someone told me no or weren't very nice. And I decided uh, to take a beginner improv class at DC Improv in Washington, DC. It was a six-week class and I studied the fine print of which there were about three sentences uh, for two hours just to ensure that there was no show. I did not have to be on stage. <laughs> so class only, no recital. Class only, no recital. And I ended up falling in love with it. And we had I had a really good class. Um, and we all decided by week four to sign up for le- level two improv, which did have a show or recital. Uh, it was free and they eliminated the the minimum, the two item minimum. So like you didn't even have to pay to see us. But I continued on um, through a few other classes and then did a little refresher virtually. And it has changed both the way I show up at work, but also truly my entire life um, was sort of transformed by by those classes and by the people I met in them. Ever since I knew that you did this, I've been thinking about doing it. So will you take me through an improv exercise right now so we can see if I should take it? Everybody should take it. Okay. I'll take you through the exercise. But my my uh, my sentence that everybody should take away from this is everyone should take it. Don't be scared. It is the best therapy, church, fun, whatever you want to call it uh, that you can do. So I think in terms of, of time constraint and also there being two of us, um, one of the, the most common sort of warm-up exercises for improv class is called One Word Story. And you can do this with two people or 10 people, but I'm going to start it off and it's just one word at a time. There's no theme. And then, you know, when we get to sort of a natural end, I'll kind of call it, but it's just one word story. So I'm going to say one word. You're going to say the next word. One at a time. Today. Rained. Down. Sorrow. And joy. 
We always love anything to drink (laughs) with strangers and loved ones. That was two words, not one. (laughs) I should have said lovers. Lovers. When will this exercise end? (laughs) It has to end now. Oh my gosh, that's so much harder than I thought it would be. Can you tell I'm blushing? (laughs) And I'm like, I can't. I will stand in front of 10,000 people and talk and have no problem. But for some reason, I was like, I'm not going to be funny enough. This is a lot of pressure. What am I going to do next? I definitely. The expectation is really heavy, but the more you do that, it's an exercise, it's a practice, it's a warm-up game. Um, the easier it is to know it doesn't matter if you if you if you mess up. Like when you said loved ones, if we had been in a classroom setting based on the teacher, coach, director, whichever one they prefer, we would have probably clapped and cheered for you because we celebrate whatever whatever comes, whatever happens, doesn't matter. It's like Nobody, nobody knew. Probably people forgot we were thinking of one word only uh-huh. um, until you pointed it out. I didn't know. And I think, you know, people will often ask me, what's the biggest takeaway you've had from improv, especially speaking in front of large groups, because that's a, such a common fear. And it's that nobody knows what you're going to say. And they're not expecting what it is. You think they might, but they're not going to know if you make a mistake and only if you draw attention to it. You know, if it's something that is database and you have to fix it, that's different. But you know, if you say loved ones instead of lovers, materially, it doesn't matter. And the only thing you're going to do is trip yourself up. And so that was one of the, the really big valuable things for me. And but also you don't have to be funny. Like I often played like the quote unquote straight guy and the, in the scene, you know, kind of offering that comedic relief more than anything else. And the last thing, if I can share about improv is if anybody knows anything about improv beyond beyond sort of the the second city and improv um, Olympics IO out of Chicago as well, is that there's a really basic principle and it's yes. And yes, comma, and, and yes, I'm accepting whatever you give me, whatever you put in front of me, I'm going with that. And I'm moving forward. It moves the story. It helps the progression of the story versus no but obviously is the direct opposite of that but if you put a roadblock in front of someone you know imagine you're sitting around a budget review table and someone is saying well we're going to do xyz and maybe they got a little carried away instead of trying to draw them back in that moment say yes and we are also going to and then try to correct maybe a little bit of their enthusiasm back into a category of this is actually possible or we actually (laughs) have the bandwidth for this and it helps move this story along and it removes any sense of expectation. You just know that we're in that together. And that's another big takeaway. The last thing I'll say, I know I said the last thing was yes and, but one of the other um, lessons I learned and really stuck with me is in the moment when you're in a scene or you're playing a character or you're just pretending you're, you're, you're yourself in a meeting and you're having a negative thought in any way, shape, or form, or you don't know what to do next, or if I say, hey, uh, Mr. Smith, and you're like, but I'm a woman, why is she calling me Mr.? Um, Is if this is true, then what else is true? 
And you can use this positively and negatively. So positively is, okay, Jen just said, hey, Mr. Smith. So that means I'm a man in a scene. She's calling me Mr. She's being deferential. So what can that mean? What's the next thing, right? So that's, if this is true, then if this is true, then what else is true? I use that to combat my imposter syndrome when I'm talking negatively to myself and say, oh, I don't deserve to be here. I should, why should anybody listen to me? And I can build on that because usually you have one or two of those negative thoughts. You don't have a whole litany of them, but they're enough to trip you up. So if I say, if, if it is true that I shouldn't be on this podcast with Susan Berry, then what else is true? And all this stuff that I would have to say after that is so negative. I wouldn't want to say it to myself because I know it's not true. So it helps me get over that hurdle. Of I not love feeling that. Good enough. That is so that's good. Of, yeah. That's one of my big, big takeaways that wasn't, you know, specific to the practice of improv or being funny or putting on a show. Um, but that has, as I said, helps transform the way I look at the world and, and live in it. Amazing. That is really good advice. I Even if I don't take a class, I'll try to remember that. So we've reached the fortune-telling portion of the program. Now is the time that we predict the future, cast some spells, wave our magic wand. What is a prediction that you have about the hotel tech stack? It's going to get worse before it gets better. What makes you say that? I think there's a lot of really innovative great products coming out that are going to be layered in with one another on a complementary or supplementary basis and eventually will need to be combined in order to have the most impact and positive effect on the overall tech stack. But I think we will get there and I think things will be more streamlined. I mean, it has to get more streamlined just for the sales cycle to happen. Mm -hmm. Because if I have to buy six tools versus one tool... I'm buying whoever can give me one. Right. I don't have enough brain power for that. So I do, you know, I think there's probably consolidation that has to happen in order to do that, which is not always fun, but can often combine very, you know, sort of powerful tools into one thing. But I do, I don't, I don't know that we're there yet. I think, like I said, it'll get worse before it gets better. Interesting. If you could wave a magic wand, what would you change about hospitality industry conferences? The diversity of speakers. And I don't just mean having more women on stage or having more people of color or black speakers, which I absolutely, all three of those things have to happen desperately. I think there is a really small pool of people think about when they are sourcing speakers for hospitality industry conferences. And they often have to meet some invisible threshold of criteria in terms of experience or perceived expertise. And I think we're missing out on learning from a lot of people who are doing the work every day. And so going back to HSMAI, I think one of the great things that they've started over the last few years are rising leader councils for each of the sort of advisory boards, the, the professional or the more senior advisory boards. And so that's giving voice and opportunity to people who are younger or earlier in their career in the hospitality to have opportunities like that. But I'd like us to move away from just, you know, CEOs or VPs or people who are managing multiple units and on to what's the really outrageous idea that took your hotel over the finish line for budget last year. What is next for you and what's next for your company? Um, well, there's sort of, combined and I and I am very grateful and, and privileged to have the opportunity 
to to say this is that we are really focused on, uh, for lack of a better word, evangelizing commercial strategy and growing it into uh, something that is a framework all hotels are run in, are run by and organizations are are holding their teams accountable for. And my role has evolved into helping us do that. And I am very passionate about the hotel industry. It's not just a job for me. So it's one of those things that, you know, I want to contribute to, whether it's in this role at Calibri Labs or somewhere else, even though that's not in the, you know, kind of immediate future, if you're looking into the crystal ball. Um, but those are those are the common goals. For me personally, I'm excited to spend more time connecting with people in industry this year. I've tried to make a personal goal, not a resolution because those are usually BS, <laughs> uh, but of reaching out to people I know in the industry, at least two of them a week, just to kind of touch base and say, hi, how are you doing? So that that doesn't all have to be condensed um, into conference settings because it's important to keep those connections alive and well. Okay, folks, before we tell Jen goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. All right, Jennifer, you're back on the loading dock. What is another story you would only tell me here? I really thought long and hard about this and decided, maybe to your disappointment and probably anyone listening, to avoid the salacious. I was trying to think if I would tell this story in in any sort of format and I, you know, it's public, whether it's speaking or in a meeting and I can't really think of a time, but I do think I can envision myself kind of out back taking a minute and a breather and knowing somebody is having a tough time, maybe with their leader or they're feeling upset about something and sharing this with them. So when I was in college, I worked uh, for a hotel in Macon, Georgia, and I was working full-time and going to school full-time. And at this point, I was working at the front desk, and I had been up, uh, a notorious procrastinator that I am, had been up all night studying. I had gone to classes, taken the exam that I'd been studying for, came to my 3 to 11 shift, immediately 10 minutes into my shift was screamed at more than most people would deem acceptable in any situation by a guest. And I just was so tired, had been up by 24 hours probably at that point. And I left the desk unattended and went into the back hallway and was crying. And somebody ran into me and said, hey, why aren't you at the desk? And I was like sobbing, could not possibly go back to the front desk. There was not a chance in hell that that was happening in the next few minutes. And I was the only person there for the front desk to work that day. And I think there was a line forming and they were like really struggling with what to do. So eventually the GM kind of became aware of the situation and came out and said, what happened? Tell me what, what happened. And he said, you know, it's okay. You know, it wasn't personal. Uh, we really need you. If I get you some water, can you go out, sort of get the line down and we'll decide what's next. And I got myself together, got the water, got out, knocked out the the people who had sort of been been lined up, got them checked in. The phone rang and it was the room number of the guy who um, had yelled at me. And I didn't want to answer the phone, but I had no choice. And he called to apologize. And the reason he did that is the GM had called him and asked him to apologize because he he was like, I don't know if you understand the impact of your actions but this is what happened. And my expectation for you to remain a guest at the hotel is to call and genuinely apologize to one of our best employees. 
And the man did it. And he was very apologetic. I assumed genuinely. And the GM never came and talked to me about it. Never said I asked for this to happen. Never checked to make sure the man did it. He just had made himself clear. And I just had so much respect for that. It wasn't like, hey, get yourself together, Hill, and get back out there. That's what we're paying you for. But to recognize that no matter what, the customer is not always right. And you have to be aware of your impact over intention. And that's a leadership lesson I took with me into my career of managing people is making sure that I protected them and they would want to come back and work for me every day because they knew they'd be well taken care of. I mean, I'm not really supposed to cry at the loading dock. So that's cool. Let me just dry my tears. Jennifer Hill, that was an amazing story. Thank you so much for being here. I hope that our listeners enjoyed our friendly debate about incentive plans and have plenty of Kleenex available once they listen to that story. Thank you so much for riding up to the top floor. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 75. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 